you, Ann. Would you now stand for the reading of God's Word? Our passage is Romans chapter 1, beginning of verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Amelia. Would you pray with me once more as we come to God's word in preparation for coming and meeting him at his table? Let's pray together. Father, we pause before you. This morning, as we have heard you speak to us through the reading of your word, Lord, as we have spoken to you through our prayers, as we, Lord, have uh, sung to you your praises that you are due, Lord, we've brought you our offerings and our gifts because, Lord, all things are from you and you are worthy of all of our lives and we worship you. Lord, now we want to open our hearts and still our hearts, and ask you to come and to speak to us through your word. Would you come and do that as we prepare to feast upon the gospel at your table? In Christ's name we pray, amen. So kids, a question to get us started here this morning. Do you have lots of rules in your house? Anybody got lots of rules? Not a lot of hands are going up. Maybe it's because you're sitting next to mom and dad. Is it ever hard to feel like, gosh, I just, I don't really like obeying mom and dad. And you feel like there's just so many things you got to do or things you can't do. You ever think, man, I can't wait till I don't have to do this anymore. I remember that as a kid. I used to think, man, when I grow up, I'm never going to do this stuff. But think about that for a minute. What if all of the, the rules and the, the things that your mom and dad required you to do, what if all of a sudden those were just all taken off? You know, things like brush your teeth and go to school and do your homework and go to bed. Don't eat dessert before you eat your food. And all the other rules that are in your life. Do you, what do you think you'd do if all of those rules were just taken off? How would you live? Would you do any of those things? Would you? <laughs> Thank you for that honesty. Gosh, there was passion in that. It's like, no, we demand our rights, you know. There's going to be an uprising this morning, right? But when you think about it, you know, so much of what you do when you're a kid, so many of the things that actually are for your good and your flourishing, so many of those rules that you actually end up obeying, You know, they're actually for your good. They are actually for your flourishing. But the reason we do them, 
The reason you do them at that age is not because you want to do them, right? Very often you don't want to do it, but you are required to do it. But the motivation is compliance. Like if I don't come through, something's going to happen. You know, I'm going to have to deal with mom and dad. There's going to be consequences, you know. The motivation for all of those things is one of fear and one of restraint, right? But the hope for mom and dad, the hope for your parents, believe it or not, is that you grow up to be adults where you do those things, not because of compliance, not because of a pressure on the will and somebody is standing over you and saying, go to bed, cut the light off, right? The hope is that you begin to develop new motivations for those things, new desires for those things, that you actually choose to do them. That's the hope. For mom and dad, because eventually not, they're not going to be there saying, go to bed, cut the light off. Well, I think that that illustrates well the hope for how Christianity works in our life. I think for, for most of us, especially in the Bible Belt, the way that we think of Christianity is, is kind of that way that we think of childhood rules. Like, I have to do this. Like, if I do these things, then good things are going to happen to me. And if I don't do them, then bad things are going to happen to me. So I, you know, I, I, I go to church and I avoid these bad sins in my life and I choose to do these things because God will bless me or things will go well or I will, God will be pleased with me and accept me. And, and so the motivation that many of us live out the Christian life with is I have to do this. And if I don't do this, something bad will happen. But the reality is, is that Christianity, and it's, it's just utterly unique. Christianity is utterly unique in the fact that it, is not, it doesn't work that way. That's actually how religion works. Every religion of the world says, do this. And it's, there's different sets of morals and different sets of rules. But, but it says, do this. And if you do this, then you will be accepted. You will arrive. You will uh, be loved. You will go to heaven when you die. All of those kind of things. That's how religion works. But Christianity is utterly different. It's utterly unique in that it says you can't do it. You cannot do it. But He has done for you. He has rescued you. And as you come to trust in that and see that and encounter the riches of His grace in the gospel, it actually changes you from the inside. You actually begin to have new motivations and new desires. I wonder if many of us here this morning have not experienced those new desires in our life. I wonder if we've not experienced that transformation where obedience is flowing not because we must do it, but because there is a new desire for obedience in our life. It's a part of what we see in the book of Romans. You know, we're starting this morning a new series in the book of Romans. And Believe it or not, I've never preached through the book of Romans. It's probably one of the most impactful books of the Bible for me in my own Christian life. It's remarkable when you look at church history, how much of the great leaders of the church throughout history were, would say that they were most impacted by the book of Romans. Augustine, probably the greatest giant in all of church history in the 4th century A.D., who really everyone after him for, for theology and leaders of the church were all standing on his shoulders. He was converted through reading the book of Romans. 
Martin Luther, another giant of the faith who led the Protestant Reformation, rescuing the gospel for the church, he was converted through reading the book of Romans, actually a passage we're going to look at next week. And so many of the leaders of the church will say, man, this book, more than anything, changed me. But as we get into it, I think we'll see Romans is also hard to understand. I mean, we just need to put that right out there. Ashley, Ashley and I were talking this week, and she was like, you probably need to be honest with people about that. Because if you really read Romans, you're like, ha, what are you, ah, it's so dense. So much is packed in there. So it's going to challenge us. We've got to chew on it. We've got to really engage. But I think we will find that in the gospel, I mean, in, in Romans, we see the depths and the riches of the gospel like no other. And what we're going to see in our passage today is that the gospel produces new desires for a life of obedience. That's what we'll see in our passage. So let's look together. We're beginning right off the bat, right here at verse 1. We're looking at this section that we're looking at here, verses 1 through 7, is the greeting. Now, all of that, this, really the book of Romans, we say book of Romans, it's a letter. It's also called an epistle, means letter. And so, in the ancient Greek world, when you were writing a letter, it followed a very common form. Ours do today as well. But particularly the way that the form would lay out is that it would begin with a greeting. And in that greeting, right off the bat, the author, the person writing, would introduce themselves. And then they would, get, uh, they would identify those that they're, they're writing to. And then there would be a greeting in it. We see all of those elements in here. And that's basically what I want us to see here. And Paul, right off the bat, we're going to see Paul as he introduces himself. What I want us to see is how he describes himself, how he identifies himself. And how he identifies himself is entirely rooted in the gospel and its impact on his life. We're also going to see in this section what is the gospel, because he, he just goes on in and just kind of unpacks the gospel in the greeting right here. I mean, the Apostle Paul, when you're reading any of his writings, he can't go three verses without going back to the gospel. Everything is rooted in the gospel and flows from the gospel. And then finally, we're going to see what is God bringing about in the world through the gospel and in us. So first, how has the gospel changed Paul? Now, verse 1, right off the bat, again, Paul is introducing himself. Now, if you think about that, you know, when you introduce yourself, what do you share? You're probably going to share the things that are most important to you, the things that are most uh, significant in your life, the things that are most true of you. If you wanted me to, if, if, if I was coming somewhere and they said, hey, I want to introduce you, how, wh- what should I say as I introduce you? Well, I'd say, well, you know, you need to say, you know, I'm married. You need to Talk about my wife. That's the most important thing in my life. And you need to talk about my children. And they're so vital to me. And probably talk about what I do, what I'm called to do in my life. You know, that's how you ought to introduce me because that's my identity. That's who I am. So how does Paul introduce himself here? And it's remarkable. Look what he says. Verse 1. Paul, again, it's me, Paul, a servant of Jesus called to be an apostle, and set apart for the gospel. That's how Paul identifies himself. Now, first thing I want you to see here is just what he says here. You know, in, our, in the NIV here, it says a servant of Christ Jesus. 
Now, the Greek word here is doulos, and it actually means slave. It's a very common reality in the first century. I mean, slavery was, it, it wasn't what we've known in, in the history of the United States where it was kidnapped slavery. In this day, it was a social class. It was a people that, that had no property and no standing, and their employment as a slave was also what provided for them. It was a social arrangement, but it was people that were literally at the very bottom of the social structure. They had no rights or very little at all. They belonged entirely to the person, their master, the person who, to whom they belonged. Those are all the things that it means to be a slave. And here's Paul saying, the main thing and the first thing I want you to know about me is that I'm a slave of Jesus. I'm utterly sold out in belonging to Him. I don't have any rights that are my own. Every ounce of my life, everything that I exist for, every breath that I take, every passion that I have, it all belongs to Him. I am a slave of Jesus Paul doesn't say this in a begrudging way like, oh, I'm in a slave. I'm, I'm a slave. I'm in bondage. He boasts of it. I'm bonded to Jesus. Everything that I have is His. It's a remarkable thing to say that I utterly belong lock, stock, and barrel to Jesus. But then he continues, I'm called to be an apostle. Apostle means one who is sent. That's his vocation. Paul was himself someone who had been commissioned and called by God, sent out with this one thing, the gospel of Jesus. The next thing he says is set apart for the gospel of God. Paul says that is my reason for being. It's what I'm called to do, to make known the gospel of Jesus. Now we might read that and say, wow, yeah, that's cool for Paul. What a special thing for Paul, that you're a slave of Jesus, that you're called and set apart for the gospel. But you know, that's the Apostle Paul. That's like a special class, and that's not really for us. But the reality is, is that when we come to Christ, we become slaves of Jesus. It's not something probably that we think a lot about, you know, because we think more of you know, I accept Jesus and Jesus becomes my Savior, which is gloriously true and wondrously true that when we are united to Jesus, all that is true of us, all of our sin and our shame is put upon Him. And we are declared righteous through His very own righteousness given to us. And so He's our Savior. But very often we forget that Jesus is also our Lord. Jesus Christ, Christ is not a second name for him, it is a title, and it means the king. And when you belong to a king, that means he rules over you. And so I think many of us really like the idea of having a savior, but if you're anything like me, I don't know so much about having a lord and a king. Because when you got a king, you don't have rights. You belong to him. You see, when we come to Christ, we belong to Him. Everything that we have. But here's the thing to see, and for Paul, Paul shows us this. When you see the love and grace of Jesus in the gospel, it makes you a willing slave. <laughs> it makes you someone to say, I want you to have it all. Have all of my life. 
I want to exist for you because I've experienced you giving everything for me. So that's Paul's picture of how the gospel has come to shape his entire identity. But then Paul goes on to unpack the gospel. Now, one of the things, one of the words that I hope you're noticing is getting used over and over and over, and just get ready as we go through the book of Romans, it's just everywhere is the gospel. You know, we say all the time as, the ch- as a church that the gospel is literally one of the very core values of our church, and that we believe the gospel is not just for unbelievers, but that it is for believers, that the gospel is not just how you become a Christian, it's not just that basic information that you need to know as you become a Christian, but it is actually how we change as we continually deepen in our understanding of the gospel. And Romans so clearly shows us that. So Paul here is just going to unpack what is the gospel for us. Look at verse 2. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So Paul here is describing that the gospel is not something that is new. It's not something that just showed up with the coming of Jesus. It's actually something that was promised throughout the history of God's people, throughout the history of the world. The whole Bible is about the gospel. That's what Paul's saying here, that God promised this gospel through the prophets, Old Testament. When New Testament writers talk about the Holy Scriptures, they're talking about the Old Testament. It's easy to think, you know, New Testament's like about grace and gospel and God's love, and Old Testament's like, it's rules and it's God's harsh and, you know, He's cranky and all this stuff, but I like the New Testament God a lot more than the Old. But the reality is, same God, both Testaments. It's all about the gospel. The entire Bible, every verse, it's about the gospel. But the gospel is not just a formula. It's very easy to think that. You know, the gospel is kind of this, you know, here you've got to understand this and that, and it's like a, a, a formulation, it's a, it's a theological statement. Paul shows us here that the gospel is about Jesus. The whole gospel is about Him. It's the good news of what Jesus has come to do. In the Old Testament, it was looking ahead and it was promising that God was going to, it was gospel is good news. It was the good news that God has not abandoned his world, even though his world has rebelled against him, even though his image has fallen in sin, that every aspect of creation is affected and corrupted by sin. That's the reality that we live in. The good news, even in the Old Testament, is that God will not abandon his creation. That he will not bring the fullness of his judgment on sin, but rather he will rescue a people for himself. That he will renew all things. That he will fill the earth with the kingdom of God. That is the hope of the Old Testament. And all of the prophets were looking ahead to the ways that God was going to do that. And it all centered on one thing. The son of David. The Messiah. The one who would come to bring all those promises to fulfillment. That was the gospel in the Old Testament. And as as Paul unpacks the gospel here, he roots it in that. Look what he says. Regarding his son, it's about Jesus, this gospel, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. There he's connecting it to all of those promises of the Old Testament. And he's also connecting it to Jesus becoming a man. It's the only way 
for God to rescue a people for himself, the only way for him to uh, redeem sinners is to take our place as one of us, to take all of our sin and shame upon himself, to live the life that we failed to live. The only way for God to redeem and rescue a people for himself is by becoming a human being like us in every way. And Paul roots that in the very core of the gospel here. But then also, he must be divine. He must be God himself for that rescue to be powerful enough for all of our sins. Verse 4, And who through the Spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power, his divinity. He is God made flesh, God and man in one. Only then can he fully bring about the payment and the rescue from our sins. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, Paul is unpacking, just right here, just even in his greeting, he's going in and unpacking the truth and the elements and the facts of the gospel and showing us how it all is centered in the person of Jesus. That he is the one who reconciles people to himself. What we're going to see in the book of Romans is that it's all about Jesus. That the gospel is not about us. It's not about what we do. The gospel is all about what God has done in Christ. It's all about Him. And so Paul over and over in the book of Romans is going to lift up Jesus and say, Look at Him. Look at Him. See what He's done. See who He is. Believe it. And let it change you from the deepest core of who you are. So that's, we've seen how the gospel has changed Paul. We've seen what the gospel is. But also, what is God bringing about through the gospel? What is he up to? What does God want to do in us through the gospel? And what does he want to do in the world and among the nations? Look at what he says in verse... Three, verse 5, verse 5. Through him, we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles, all the nations, to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Now, this is a huge phrase uh, for Paul, and especially in the book of Romans. This, the obedience that comes from faith. Literally in the Greek, it's the obedience of faith. Paul uses it right here at the very beginning, right here in the greeting, and at the very end of the book of Romans. You could turn there and you could look. You could look at the very end of Romans 16, and he says almost this same thing. For the obedience of faith among the nations. That's what God's after. God is after the obedience of the nations. That, that wayward sinners, that rebels against him, that people like us, fallen in sin, who've gone our own way, who've thrown off God in our life, who've run after created things rather than the Creator, that people like us would actually come to obey the living God with the fullness of our hearts. That's what God wants. He wants our life. He wants our obedience. He wants us, like Paul, to become slaves of Jesus, joyful slaves saying, have all of my life. He wants the transformation of who we are. It's very easy to think, especially in the Bible Belt, the emphasis so often tends to be on getting saved in the sense of, of like getting a 
ticket to heaven, right? But we don't understand that what God's ultimate goal is in our life is not just to bring us to heaven when we die, but is actually to transform who we are, that we would become like Jesus in every way, that we would love like Him, that we would trust in the Father like Him, that we would fully embody who He is in every way, that we would obey God. God's ultimate goal, to fill the earth with worshipers of Him, with people who obey Him. But the beauty about this phrase is how that happens. And that's the power and the message of the book of Romans. You know, it'd be easy to think, to read that phrase and say, okay, the obedience of faith, the obedience that comes from faith. Okay, God's after obedience, and so, yeah, obedience and faith, so that's how we're saved, and that's what God's after. We're saved by both believing and obeying. That's what is the basis of our salvation, but that's not what he's saying. Here's why you've got to be real careful when you read Paul to break it down. You know, sometimes reading the Bible with my kids, and they read it so fast and I'm like, ah, you miss it. you got to slow down. you got to read Paul that way. What does he say? That God is about bringing about the obedience that comes from faith. You see that? Where does obedience come from? This obedience that God is after, this willing heart, this delighting in God, this transformation flows from believing in the gospel. That's the book of Romans. That's why he puts it at the beginning, and that's why he puts it at the end. It's like a bookend. Paul says, this is what it's all about. This is the heart of the gospel. That the way that we are changed, the way that we, people like us, I don't know about you, but I don't wake up in the morning saying, oh, I can't wait to obey God today. I wake up in the opposite. I wake up wanting to obey my desires. And that's why life can be so hard. Because I desire all the wrong things. And so the question is, how do I get changed fundamentally at a heart level where obedience goes from something I hold my nose to to something I delight in? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine actually relishing obedience in your heart? The only way for that to happen is through a work of grace of God in our hearts. Only He can bring it about. But he does it as we believe the gospel. The obedience that comes from faith in the gospel. See, as we believe the gospel more and more deeply, as we understand the riches of what Christ has done, that, that, that he has rescued us entirely on the basis of grace, as that sinks more and more deeply in our hearts as we work it into our hearts, it changes us fundamentally at the heart level so that obedience flows in our life. What's interesting, Paul just loads this reality even into verse 7, his identifying of them. You remember, he's writing to these, these Romans. It's probably a network of house churches in Rome. And look how he addresses them here. Verse 7, he's wanting to root them in their identity in the gospel. And what does he say here? To all in Rome who are loved by God, you are loved. You've been accepted. You've been chosen. God rescued you on the basis of nothing that you've done. He's loved you in spite of you. You are His. I want you to know that. But then secondly, 
are called to be His holy people. See, He puts them together. You see, the only way that we are going to become His holy people, you see, we are called to be holy. We are called to live a life of worship to God. We are called to obey. But the only way to do that is to first be deeply rooted in the reality that God has loved you in spite of all that's true of you. That is the fuel of it. That is the power of it. And that is what Romans is about. Unlocking that is what changes everything. You know, as a young believer, this literally changed me. You know, it's, when I first came to Christ, I was a, a senior in high school. And when I came to Christ, it was kind of in this place. It wasn't necessarily in a place of fully understanding very much at all. All I knew is that I was literally at rock bottom in my life, hopeless, broken, helpless, and just had this sense that I need to be rescued, and I really have come to the place that only Jesus can rescue me. And so I trusted in Christ. I gave my life to Christ, and I knew when I came to Jesus, I knew I don't deserve this. I have, I have disobeyed you. I've gone my own way. I've, I've broken your law in every way. But yet Jesus has taken my place, and I'm putting my trust in that. And I got that as I first became a believer. But you know what? I, I didn't fully understand, but you know what I believed in my heart? I believed, okay, great, that grace is wonderful, but now it's really up to me. And functionally in my heart, I believed that remaining in God's uh, heart, remaining in this relationship with God, remaining in God's favor required both my belief and my obedience. See how they went together? That, that, that I was basing at some level my goodness on my acceptance before God. So when I was doing well, I felt like, oh God, you just, you love me. I know your love. When I was blowing it, God's at a distance, right? And so that kind of worked okay for a couple months, until I really began to struggle with old patterns of sin in my life. And, and I just found myself for a, a period of years just this, up and down, you know, running to God and then running away from God and running back to God and just back and forth and just could not get any real growth and freedom in my life. But here's what began to change me. God brought someone into my life that began to teach me the truth of the gospel that began to teach me that the gospel was not just how I got into this relationship with God, but it was how it was maintained. It was how I was to grow. It was how I was to change. That on a daily basis, as I came to understand more and more deeply, oh my gosh, in spite of all that's true of me now, you have loved me in Christ. I'm righteous in Him. And as that penetrated my heart at a deep level, it began to change me from the inside out. It began to give me new desires. I began to experience freedom in areas that I would not before. And then, I don't struggle anymore. You know that's not true, right? Who's awake here, right? Yes, I still struggle. And you know, the shape of the struggle is almost the same, right? This deep-seated belief in me that my acceptance in some level is based upon my obedience and my goodness. And, and when I try to obey out of my own strength, it's just a failure. It just doesn't work. But 
as I'm relying on and experiencing the gospel, literally it brings a change of heart in the moment. You know, even this moment, morning, you know, Sunday morning, I wake up and I got to get my heart prepared to come to preach God's word and to worship. I hope you're doing the same thing, to prepare your heart to come worship God. Because when I wake up in the morning, would you believe it, even on a Sunday morning, even a preacher, I wake up in the morning and my heart is cold. It's cold to the Lord. I don't want to go worship. I want to lay in bed and watch football all day, right? That's what I want to do, eat wings, right? How do I get changed? How do I get changed? Because I can't fake it. I can't get up here and fake it. How do I get a hunger for Him? How do I, oh, how do I get that, that joy, that delight where I got something to offer? I got to see the gospel. <laughs> That's what I do. I get up. And I sit there before God and I quiet my heart and I just let the truth of the gospel begin to take hold of my heart. And you know, the minute I see it, the minute I see my sin and repentance and the riches of the grace of Jesus for me on the cross, and when it hits in my heart, it like ignites. It's like a little spark. I mean, it's like literally my heart changes in the moment. Now the thing is, I got to keep doing it i got to go back to it. You know what the hardest thing I find in ministry is? Is convincing believers that the gospel is for them. That it's for us. I bet what I'm talking about here and unpacking what Paul's saying here, I bet at some level a lot of us are saying, I kind of get that. I kind of know what you're talking about. It's kind of like, oh, can you give us something new here? Or like, Ah, oh, I really hope such and such and such is really listening to this, right? Or, oh, I wish my unbelieving friend was here to hear this. Can you rediscover it? Can you see it over and over and over and it be fresh on your heart? Can it penetrate? Can it bring that joy? Can it ignite your heart from saying, oh my goodness? You know, probably if you're a believer here today, you had some... You had some conversion in your life where you came to see, oh, I'm so broken in sin. I'm worse than I know. But, oh, Jesus, you've rescued me entirely by your work. And what did that do in you? Did it produce joy? Did it change you in the moment? Yes. The way that we progress in the Christian life is a continual rediscovery of... It's got to hit, hit home in your heart. So a little application here, some questions for you. One, is the gospel producing obedience in your life? Are you growing? Are you changing? Are you seeking to obey? Are you wrestling with established patterns of sin in your life? Or are you just cruising? I think the easiest thing in the world in the Bible Belt... Because we've got all this false assurance that, that people have uh, come to believe something in their head or they've made a decision in their life and they think, okay, I'm good. I'm saved. Now I'm just waiting around to be beamed up to heaven. I'm just going to live my life however I want to live my life. And we're not growing. Our discipleship just stopped. I wonder if that's you this morning. Are you growing? Are you seeking to grow? Are you wrestling with your sin? Because that's what we're called to. We're called to change. 
We're called to grow. We're called to grow in love. Love for God, love for Jesus, love for one another. Are we growing in love? But you know, the only way to do that is not through our strength. You know, we might hear that and say, you're right. I'm going to go out and I'm going to work on some obedience in my life. White knuckle it, and then next week, utter despair, right? That's how it works. No, no, you see, the way that we grow is by deepening in our rediscovery of the riches of the grace of Jesus in the gospel, personally. you got to go back to it over and over and over and let it ignite your heart with joy. How does this work? How does that work in us? How do we experience the gospel? Well, it's through repentance and faith. A continual experience, a continual practice of repentance and faith. You see, repentance is turning from sin. You are seeing your sin, bringing it to God, confessing it, and turning from it. And apart from that, you're not going to experience the gospel. Because in order for the, the, the cross to become beautiful to you, in order for the, the grace of Jesus to electrify your heart, you first got to see your need of it. If you cannot see yourself, if you cannot look into your heart, if you cannot examine your life, if you cannot introspect with yourself, you are not going to see the gospel. It's not going to move you. It's not going to penetrate. I mean, that's, we're going to see that in Romans. Paul is going to say, you have to see how broken in sin you are if you're ever going to see how beautiful and amazing the grace of Jesus is. That's repentance. Apart from repentance, the gospel is never going to ignite our hearts. We've got to see our brokenness. You know, so often um, that is very common in the church for, you know, some churches can really emphasize like, you know, the, the, the righteousness of God and the, the, the judgment of God and, and, and we've got to do everything right. And so, you know, compliance is a big thing in, in the practice of that church and there's no gospel power. But in other churches, and this might be even more common in the American church, we want to say, no, 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 let's emphasize God's love. He's loving. He's forgiving. It's who He is. But you know what? That will not change your life. That will not penetrate your heart. The only thing that changes us is when they come together. When I see the holiness of God. I see the judgment of God towards sin because of how righteous He is. And I see what He demands of me. And I see the, the standard of the law and that He requires perfection from us. I've got to see that and see I can't do it. And then I see the love of God for me in Jesus. That He has achieved. That He has merited. That He has taken my wrath. It's when those come together that the power of the gospel is unleashed in our hearts. So this morning, uh, we get to come to the table. We get to come to the communion table, which has been given to us to experience the gospel. To actually taste it. That's why Jesus has given it to us. And it's, it's all centered on Jesus. It's, it's the, the broken body of Jesus and His shed blood for us that we feed upon Him. And, and through communion, God is deepening us in the truth of the gospel. And before we come to the table, we always begin with repentance and faith. We always begin with a prayer of confession. Now, if we want to pull that up, we're going to pray this prayer of confession together. 
This is a little bit different one here. It's a responsive one, okay? So if you can pick out here that there's parts that are bold and parts that are not bold. I'm going to read the not bold, and then together we're going to say the bold, okay? Now, this is not just something we read back and forth. I want to invite you, make this your confession to the Lord. Make this your prayer to the Lord. I'll give us a few moments right after to confess silently to the Lord. And again, this is repentance that is preparing our hearts to experience the joy of the gospel at the table. So let's pray together. Lord, you have showed us true humility by becoming one of us. Yet too often we practice pride. You cried alongside your friends and for the city of Jerusalem. Yet too often we rushed past the pain of others and are careless about our cities. You love those who are weak, despised, or cast out. Yet too often we love those who are strong, respected, or popular. There's another slide. You, for, you freely forgave and healed, yet too often we hold grudges and cause pain. You lived a perfectly holy life, yet too often we do not yearn for righteousness. You prayed that we who believe in you should be united with each other and you. Yet too often we focus on the differences that separate us from other believers. You were mocked, whipped, and even killed for us. Yet too often we deny you. You call us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Yet too often we blend into or hide from our culture. Forgive us, Lord, so that we will shine with your glory. Amen. Now take a few moments to confess silently your sin to the Lord. Father, we do come before you and confess that, Lord, we have gone our own way. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. We have not loved you in the way that you have called us to. We have loved the things of this world in place of you, and we have not loved one another in the ways that you have called us to love. Lord, we confess our sin to you, and we now open our hearts to receive the fullness of your grace poured out for us in the blood of Jesus. Come and set apart these common elements at your table that, Lord, the realities and the riches and the wonders of the gospel would go deeper into our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now hear this assurance of pardon from Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law and the power of sin and death. Amen. Amen.